People of Note on Fine Music Radio is proudly brought to you each week at this time by Peter Turin Productions. Rodney Trojan welcoming you to this week's edition of People of Note here on Fine Music Radio. And my guest this week is a concert pianist. Gustavo Romero is internationally renowned for his exceptional technical brilliance as well as his interpretive depth and has gained an acclaimed reputation for his commitment to in-depth exploration of a wide variety of composers. He was born in Mexico and discovered his love and gift for the piano at the age of five. And in fact, he gave his first public performance at the age of 10, when he also won his first piano competition. At 13, he performed with the New York Philharmonic under Zubin Mehta. Rudolf Serkin recognized his exceptional talent, and at the age of 14, he attended the Juilliard School. He's won many awards and prizes, as you can imagine, and he joined the faculty of the University of North Texas College of Music in 2002. And at the moment, Gustavo is here, hopefully, to do quite an impressive cycle, but we'll get to that in a moment. Gustavo, welcome. It's good to have you in the studio. Thank you, Rodney. What I find interesting is that you've been dogged by COVID, haven't you, as we all have, because you were going to come out here last year, weren't you, and do all right. 32 Beethoven piano sonatas. We, we met and we were talking about the great... 200th birthday year of Beethoven, what plans we had for the year. We were all excited about that Mm. in January, and then the nightmare occurred in March. So all the plans for doing the cycle just completely vanished. But you had done the cycle elsewhere beforehand, hadn't you? I think you had planned a few for the Beethoven anniversary. Yes, I was going to take a leave from the university where I teach at University of North Texas in Denton, and I was going to play it, it, the whole cycle in Mexico City, in Japan, and I was going to start it here in Cape Town. So I had plans to play the cycle for a whole six months. <laughs> you know, I have to ask you this question early on in this interview. It sounds almost as though you punished yourself the thought of learning and then memorizing the 32 Beethoven piano sonatas. I, I can't quite grasp But you see, the Beethoven sonatas figure in any pianist's life early on. So you find out at the midpoint of your life that you've already learned half of them. So it's very easy to, if you start taking on the idea of playing the cycle, of just filling in the holes where you haven't, of the sonatas you haven't played. So it's very easy to arrive at the age of 30 and you've already played at least 15 of the sonatas. So it's not such a colossal thing to take on. It just takes kind of a methodical uh, learning them over a long period of time and then adding on the ones that you've never played before. I love that uh, description that I can't remember who said it, that the 48 preludes and fugues of right. Bach is the Old Testament of keyboard playing. You know who said that? The 32 Beethoven sonatas, the New Testament. That's the great pianist Hans von Bülow. Oh, okay. He's yes. the one who played the first time in America the complete cycle from memory, and uh, he was the one who gave the Old Testament and New Testament to the 48 and the Beethoven. But it's quite a good description, isn't it, when you consider what happened to keyboard playing between Bach's time and Beethoven's time. Yes, exactly. Let alone beyond that. Right. 
But the Beethoven piano sonatas, right from the beginning up to the last sonatas, certainly opened the whole world of keyboard playing for the 19th century. Yes. And in fact, into the 20th, would you say? Yes. This is what's extraordinary with the arrival of Beethoven, is that he transformed piano playing. Up until then, in fact, we have accounts of Beethoven who said, when he heard Mozart's playing, oh, I don't like Mozart's playing because everything is short and staccato. So Beethoven already had a different sound playing the piano in his mind. So everything became very legato, and we had very extremes in the registers, low registers, and a completely different approach to what he wrote for the piano and how he played the piano. But the other important thing, Gustavo, of course, is that the piano as an instrument developed so much between Mozart and Haydn and during Beethoven's concertos and sonatas. Yes, just like the iPhone. Every single year there were new changes. (laughs) Most unexpected comparison. Exactly. Just like the iPhone, you have a new model coming in and the minute there was a change, Beethoven added on the new notes Mm. and when the pedal became developed, long pedals we were appearing for extraordinary sound effects so he was he was constantly embracing the new piano and he knew that it would continue so by the time he wrote the Hammerklavier, he already knew that pianos were going to be even better after that. That's why he said, I'm going to write a sonata that pianists can play 50 years from now. Is that what he said about the Hammerklavier? Yes. And you agree? I mean, it's, Absolutely. It's, 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 it's more than 50 years, and here we are still wrestling with its difficulties. Mm-hmm. It remains The thing challenge. is, um, one of the things, and we'll go into this in a while, but what I was interested to see is how you've divided up the sonatas. Because you're not playing them chronologically, because that would be kind of impractical. It would be nice if you could, but one has to bear in mind the audience and the sort of stamina of the audience. It's a choice, because the extraordinary thing about the Beethoven sonatas is that they cover his entire lifetime. So if you sit down in your home and you listen to them chronologically, you'll hear how he develops. You'll hear how, first how he wants to prove himself to the world, and he becomes very virtuosic. And you hear the late sonatas, everything becomes very condensed and succinct. So it's wonderful to hear this evolution and this development. But for concerts, when you go to an evening of two hours and you hear all early sonatas, it's not such an interesting program. The best in a program is to have contrast. So if you're going to play only Beethoven sonatas and we have early, middle, and late sonatas, in the end, it's nicer to have a mixture in each evening. And I've put seven programs together, each one with a named sonata, the Appassionata, the Waldstein, the Tempest, the Moonlight. The, it's just the way I've decided to do them. And is that how you've been doing them? When you do the cycle, you do it in the Yes. Theory, and you find that it works both musically and emotionally. And I enjoy it very much, and I think the public... Uh, enjoys it more in in this way. Of course, it's always tempting to play chronologically because Mm. if you're there every week for seven weeks, it is nice to hear the way Beethoven changes. And some of these sonatas are in groups of threes, Opus 31, number two and three, uh, one, two, three, and Opus two, one, two, three, ten, Opus two, one, two, three. And then the last evening, 109, 110, 111, you know, becomes this very (laughs) serious, uh, transcendent evening. Of course, that's a very nice experience. But at the same time, any concert that includes 109, the Hammerklavier, 
should be the last one on the program. Yeah. You could, what can you play if, after the Hummercliffe? Yes. <laughs> now, let's have uh, your first choice of music, which I see is from the world of oratorio. It's music by Haydn. Yes. You see, during COVID, I had a re-visiting uh, of Franz Josef Haydn. Poor Haydn, he gets always overshadowed by Mozart and Beethoven. And I learned a lot of new Haydn sonatas. And I remember during this COVID period, one of my favorite pieces, if not my favorite piece by Haydn, is definitely this extraordinary oratorio that not, is not so well known. We all know the seasons and the creation. But before those two oratorios, he wrote a wonderful work, Il Ritorno di Tobia, The Return of Tobias. And it has some extraordinary arias, especially the one aria, Quando mi dona un ceno, which is a 13-minute tenor aria in E major, which is already an extraordinary key. So I revisited this piece, and I'm amazed how I continue to love this piece unconditionally. We're not going to be able to play all 13 minutes, but shall we give it a try? Yes.
Well, sadly, we have to fade there. That's a 13-minute aria from an oratorio by Handel called Il Ritorno di Tobia, Tobia The Return of Tobias. And what is the name of that aria? Quando mi dona un cen. And it's captured your attention, clearly. <laughs> yes, it's a beautiful aria. My guest on People of Note here on Fine Music Radio this week is the concert pianist Gustavo Romero, who is in Cape Town at the moment, theoretically on holiday, but hoping to do a Beethoven cycle yet. Is that true? Yes, hoping. We'll see how things de- develop with our pandemic and the safety of everything. But if all goes as planned, I would like to play seven recitals of all the Beethoven sonatas. Yes, uh, now, February, January, yeah, February. Yes, yeah, that's right. I really hope it comes about. I've never, with my love of Beethoven, I've never heard all the Beethoven piano sonatas live. So me, let alone all the other people who would love, I can't wait. And I really hope that you get yourself a gig, shall we say. (laughs) But Gustavo, it seems as though you concentrate, as I said at the beginning, in-depth exploration of a wide variety of uh, composers. For example, in 2017-18, Apparently, you focused on the works of Enrique Granados, celebrating his 150th anniversary. So is there something special for you to focus on one composer like that and do cycles? Well, when I started this festival in San Diego, California, it all started with celebrating composers' anniversaries. happened to be the Chopin anniversary year, then there was the Mozart anniversary year. And so in the beginning... it was celebrating these anniversaries, and it was the opportunity to play, for example, that first time I played the Beethoven cycle in 2000 for two summers. So it gave me the opportunity to play all the Mozart sonatas and all four Schubert recitals, and and it just grew from there. It, it was very successful, four recitals every summer. And so I began to go through these complete cycles of composers. And I would spend the year playing this repertoire and getting to know the pieces that I didn't know. And then finally in, the, in July presenting the four recitals. And for 20 years I did this. And so as a result, I did complete Chopin, all Beethoven sonatas, all Mozart sonatas, four Schubert recitals, four Brahms recitals, four Liszt recitals, four Schumann recitals, the complete piano works of Ravel in two concerts, which you can play in two concerts, yes. all of Ravel. The Debussy year, I played four recitals of Debussy. One of the things that I can't help asking, there's a vast sort of array of composers there that are quite different. Debussy, for example, is so different from Beethoven. Liszt so different from Mozart. So you must have to adjust your thinking and stylistic sort of approach all the time. But I suppose if you're doing a cycle, you can concentrate on one particular style for that period. Yes. Ever since I was playing in public, immediately people like to name brand you or pigeonhole you into a certain composer and want to know if you're a specialist in something. And I always felt it was important to play a wide repertoire and always to play a variety. So I've I've kept to that up until now. And yes, I play one composer programs a lot annually. But in the end, I think it's very good artistically to be always having a variety of composers and adjusting to these different styles pianistically. Mm-hmm. Because how do you how do you relate to, I mean, I'm just choosing this at the top of my head, the sound world of Debussy, for example, compared with Liszt and Beethoven and yeah. 
it's such a different sound. Right. And aesthetically, to be able to enter French music as opposed to something more literal like Mozart. Yes, you, you have to change your piano technique and your sound imagination has to be stretched. So I find it very healthy. Just to be able to do these different composers yes. and to concentrate on them for that length of time. Yes, being versatile and mm-hmm. being and adjusting to these different approaches to the piano. But you, I mean, you're a concert pianist, so I presume you do concerts with orchestras. You played with a number of orchestras around the world and presumably with a concerto repertoire as well. You explore a number of different composers. It's more difficult to do concertos as a as a cycle, really, I suppose. Yes, and you play what you're invited to play, whether it's a Beethoven concerto or the Rachmaninoff concerto. I find the recital, in the end, much more enriching and satisfying because then you don't have to adjust so much to what's happening with an orchestra. Mm-hmm. And to create an evening of a two-hour program with intermission, especially when you have uh, several composers, to create a, a nice balanced program, and it's very satisfying. Obviously, then, you care a lot about your audience because you keep using the word balance and all that, which is important for a listener, isn't it? Yes. Well, you can't really only give main courses like the Schubert B flat and the Hammer clavier all in one concert. It's, you know, like a, the metaphor of the uh, balanced meal. It, it really lends itself for a program. You want to hear something substantial in the first half, and by the second half, something not so demanding, so that you come away uh, refreshed from this listening experience. But you know, nowadays, oh, uh, the pianists want to show how serious they are and, and they only play 109, 110, 111, you know. Yeah. The Diabelli variations as the oh, second half. Yes. Oh, gosh. Okay, we're going to have another piece of music and Mozart is coming up. He's sonata for two pianos, not the four hands one, the two pianos one. K448, is there a special reason you've chosen this? Well, you know, Mozart has to figure in any great desert island list because it's incredible how beautiful and how inspiring Mozart is. But you know, every time I play this two pianos sonata, after I play the last movement, inevitably I always feel like I want to play it again. It's <laughs> it's an extraordinary piece, especially the last movement. And when you finish a piece and you have that feeling of you want to sit down and just start it all over again. I always feel that that's a great indication of how much you love the piece. Well, here it is then. That's the third movement of the Sonata for Two Pianos by Mozart. Thank you. 
That was the third movement of the sonata for two pianos, K448 by Mozart. 
And another choice of my guest on People of Note this week, the concert pianist Gustavo Romero, enjoying what seems to be a holiday in Cape Town, but is champing at the bit to play us a seven-concert cycle of the complete 32 Beethoven piano sonatas. But I am right, Gustavo Onta, by saying you are enjoying a bit of a holiday here. Oh, I love Cape Town. I love coming here, and I've been coming here since 1997. And yes, I'm thrilled to be here and enjoying beautiful weather, delicious food, and <laughs> and wonderful sea air. But yes, I have a piano uh, keyboard in my place, and I'm I'm learning pieces, uh, new pieces. I'm going to play hopefully in Mexico City the the Beethoven Violin Concerto transcribed for piano, oh, yes, Opus sixty one A. I hope to play that at the end of February in Mexico City. So I'm learning that, but you know I have other things that mm-hmm. I'm going to prepare. But you can relax at the same time, as oh, you said, sure. enjoying good food and good yeah. wine. One of the things I wanted to ask you was, is about just your youth, your childhood. You said you discovered music when you were five or very young. How did that come about? Did you have music in your family? So I didn't have musical parents at all. And at a neighbor's house, I was staying half the day going to kindergarten, the other half. And there's where I first heard the piano and saw the piano. There was a woman who would play church hymns with you know the church hymn book there and i thought it was magical she would she would go to this piano and she would open this book with those you know those funny triangular shaped notes because in the hymns they had different printing and at the top of her lungs she would sing out and playing these hymns i thought it was the most magical thing i'd ever <laughs> seen and heard and so they were very nice to me there. They never told me not to touch the piano. And I was kind of picking away at this thing, trying to figure out what is it that she knew that I didn't know. And that was my introduction at the age of five to this instrument that she would play every day. And then I had pianos at school and pianos at my father's work. And I thought, oh, everywhere these pianos are appearing. I want to play this this thing, which is magical. I eventually got a piano... Uh, teacher and I asked uh, my parents finally for a piano of my own because at school my teachers were saying to my uh, parents oh and Gustavo plays the piano very well how long does has he been taking piano lessons and my mother says well we don't even have a piano what are you talking (laughs) about oh but he tries to play on his own so eventually yes I got a piano of my own and piano lessons and I started entering competitions and and I've eventually left early on from San Diego because my teacher says, you're beginning to anticipate everything I say. You have to go to New York now and audition for Juilliard. And I was 13 years old. And you got into Juilliard, didn't Yes. You? And so I went away and I left my hometown and I lived in New York the first year on my own. And I entered the pre-college of Juilliard and I first uh, year of high school. But then as I want to use that cliche, the rest is history because you won a number of prizes. You won important prizes, the prestigious Clara Haskell International Piano Competition. That's the one in Switzerland. The Avery Fisher Career Grant, the Musical America Young Artist Award. These are big awards apart from all the other, the other awards you won. Yes, it was a great moment when I played, uh, entered this competition, the Clara Haskell International Piano Competition, which is the only competition in the world that's only one prize, first prize. You either mm-hmm. win or not. I was 24, and I felt that I had to enter an international competition to kind of get the stamp of approval in the marketplace. Yeah. So yeah. I was 
thrilled to be a winner in that. Can you remember what you played? Oh, absolutely. It's four very rigorous stages. It's the only piano competition in the world where in the finals you have to prepare four concertos. A Mozart concerto, a Beethoven concerto, that year the Schumann concerto, and the Mendelssohn D minor, the second. So if you get to the finals, you have to have four concertos ready. <laughs> and you have, you have to play obligatory pieces in the first round and etudes in the second round. Schubert had to be included in the third round. It's a very uh, uh, demanding thing. After you, they announce the finalists, uh, you, there you stand wondering which concerto they're going <laughs> to give you. And the next day, you have to be ready to play yeah. that concerto. So... I was very lucky I got the Mendelssohn Second Concerto oh, because I'd never played it before. So my mind was absolutely free. I had no preconceived ideas about what was difficult, what was, you know, so I, I had a great time with it. Playing the rehearsal was the first time I'd ever played it. I was having the best time. So in the end, it was great luck for me. But there was also that thing that when you were young, I mean, 13 with the New York Philharmonic under Zubin Mehta, an internationally famous conductor. That must have been quite an experience. Yes, I was very uh, lucky to have a teacher who entered me in this competition. Uh, I went three times to, to New York to audition to play with the New York Philharmonic, and I was chosen to play uh, with the New York Philharmonic, the Beethoven Second Piano Concerto Last Movement with Zubin Mehta, and it was televised by CBS in America. And yes, it was the first time I'd seen, been to New York, and I went... To, uh, play for my teacher that I eventually studied with at Juilliard. And so it, it opened up New York to me and seeing uh, it was a great experience. Uh, so these were like calling cards for you as a young pianist that you won these competitions. And then uh, people start taking notice of you, the concert agents, the record companies and so on. Very lucky to have the, yeah, uh, this exposure, yes. Schubert, talking about Schubert coming up next, but oh. not Schubert piano music. The Schubert qu String Quintet, the one, as you say, Gustavo, for two cellos. Yes, I know, Ronnie, your favorite piano work is the Schubert D960 Sonata. But yes. for me, for me, I think this chamber work, the two cello quintet D956, it has everything from ferocity to transcendence. It's an extraordinary work written just two months before he dies. An extraordinary piece. I've never uh, tired of this piece and I find it every time I hear it, I like the Mozart to piano. I want to hear it again. <laughs> There's so much to discover in it and it's a sublime piece. It's incredible. So inspired. I, you mentioned the D960. That's my favorite Schubert piano piece. But then, of course, there's this, the string quintet. Yes. So once again, because you're choosing long pieces, Gustavo, we're going to have to fade well, it. But, but you know, I like long pieces. I like pieces that I can... Lose uh, yourself in. Yes. yes. I don't like playing like the 24 Chopin preludes. I, I hate that piece because the minute you finish, you have to play something else and it's one minute. Yeah. I like pieces I can sink myself into. And well, this would be like that. But we're going to hear part of the opening, is that right? Great. Of yes. the Schubert String Quintet. Yes.
Dear, there we have to leave that glorious music. Part of the opening of the string quintets by Schubert, the one for two cellos and strings, and it was another choice, the third choice of my guest, Gustavo Romero, a concert pianist who's in town, hoping to treat us to a, a cycle of the Beethoven piano sonatas over the next month or two. So watch the space, as we say here on Fine Music Radio, because the moment dates and venues have been confirmed, we'll let you know, believe me, because it'll be quite an experience. Um, I mentioned, Gustavo, that you joined the piano faculty of the University of North Texas College of Music in 2002, after five years serving on the faculty of the music of, uh, of the University of Illinois. So is education and academia quite appealing to you? Yes, because I studied and inherited a very important schooling approach to piano playing. And it's very important for me to pass this on to the next generation. I'm talking about uh, things like... Uh, the importance of legato in piano playing. The the mere word is becoming uh, almost endangered <laughs> in piano playing today. People don't even talk about this approach. Why anymore. would legato be a, a, because be a now problem? you see because of technology and because of the the new type of sound 
approach to how we listen to things, uh, we do, we have a a different conception of what sound needs to be, and great piano sound is so. Uh, there are schools who don't even believe that it's important to have a beautiful legato in piano playing. Just like the bel canto uh, singing uh, schooling is also uh, becoming endangered. Uh, so it's very important for me and to pass this on to those talented students who really want to know about how the golden age of pianists became such a golden age with these pianists who knew all about this approach to, to piano playing. So, yes, I've enjoyed that very much, and especially how you learn so much more about a piece when you have to guide somebody else through it. Mm -hmm. You study a, a great piece like the Liszt Sonata, but then when you have a student who plays it for you, who's never played the piece before, and you have to illuminate them and light, enlighten them to what extraordinary about this piece that they might not quite see and you discover things while you're explaining and while you're mm -hmm. guiding them through this piece you rediscover things and or they they ask you a question and it, it challenges your point of view and that's been very enriching i was going to say i bet you there have been times where a student has actually made you rethink something. Yes. I mean, not that he's saying you wrong or that he's right. No. But just the idea of having to, I'd never thought of it that way. You know, exactly. a student might say, but what about this? Right. So does, I mean, that must be rather special for you in the teaching yes, world. Yes, very much, yes. But you also do master classes, don't you? Because I remember some years ago now seeing you do a master class at UCT. At That's Cape right, you were there. I was there. And um, it was interesting to watch you actually while the pianists were playing to see how you responded to what they were doing and then going up to them that must be also and it's very entertaining for the audience as well yes because everybody has different teaching approaches and it's a it's very uh, concentrated in just a matter of minutes to to know what to target uh and speak about and what to call their attention to so that's that can be very challenging because a a student um to get something out of this hour uh, needs to know exactly what really needs work. Mm -hmm. So, yes. You worried me now when you said about what people are expecting from sound with technology and all that when you were talking about legato. I hope, uh, you know, the great piano makers, Steinway, now this Fazioli, they are technically, although they made magnificently, they are technically the same as pianos have always been if you want to get legato or staccato or whatever. So I'm hoping that you're not suggesting that electronics might take over or something? No, but as you mentioned the Fazioli, and, and we are entering uh, a new era of a piano that's just as beautiful as the Steinway and continues to uh, be developed, and they're making wonderful pianos. Let's not forget that simultaneously we have even more digital pianos being produced. And we are the generation that has pianos that play automatically. <laughs> we used to have Ampico or these player pianos, yes. but now you go to a lobby in an Asian hotel and you find that the grand piano is playing by itself, digital. Most irritating. So you I see, saw that once. So uh, and even the keys are depressed. You see the keys oh, I know, moving. like a ghost playing, yeah. So yeah. 
there's the piano is constantly being developed, and they're even doing away with with pianists. You know, you can you can record <laughs> yourself now on the Spirio Steinway. You can play a piece, and they can uh, keep all of this recorded. What you've just done. And they'll sell that digital performance, and so uh, you can have in your home. Anybody can buy in their home that performance you've recorded, especially for that piano. So it's it's always something new, oh, and doing away with live performances and the actual thing happening in front of you. Yes. Uh well, I'm all depressed. So let's. <laughs> you've chosen some Beethoven now. The last movement of number twenty-eight, Opus One Hundred One. I mean. I feel stupid asking you why you've chosen this because well, it is such great music. All of the extraordinary thing about the Beethoven sonatas is that not one, there are no two sonatas alike. Mm. And yes, there's the great transcendence of the last 111 or the thrill of playing the Appassionata. There's nothing like the feeling of, of playing uh, the Appassionata. But you know, every time I play 101, like this Mozart's two piano sonata, the minute I finish this, I'm filled with the feeling of, I wish I could sit down and play it all over again. It has the most wonderful last movement. You, you see, some great uh, Beethoven sonatas don't necessarily have great last movements, even though the first movement is extraordinary. So sometimes Beethoven can be slightly anticlimactic in the later movements. Take something like the pathetique, an yes, extraordinary first movement. Oh, yeah, but the last movement is not on the same level of, of fire and inspiration as the first. So when you play something like 101, which from the beginning and has that graph at the end, it reaches such a peak, you really feel extraordinary after that.
Well, the great Beethoven making an appearance on our program, the last movement of the Piano Sonata Number no. 28, Opus 101 by Beethoven, and played there by Wilhelm Kempf, the great Wilhelm Kempf. And you smiling, Gustavo, is that okay that I played <laughs> Wilhelm Kempf? Yeah, there's so many cycles, you know. You can hear the first one recorded by Schnabel, and now, up until now, there's... They're, they're still coming out. Do you listen at home? Do you listen to recordings? Yes. Do you find that it interferes with your... Uh, no, I was, since I was very young, you know, we didn't have CDs, so we collected the great golden age of pianists on records. So mm-hmm. it was a thrill to fu- discover the first Beethoven cycle ever recorded, Schnabel. We grew up with hearing those Schnabel recordings. And then you discover all those other names, those other Beethoven players. Bachhaus, that complete cycle, the f- that extraordinary cycle recorded by Arau, probably the, one of the greatest hammerclaviers. Solomon, the great English pianist, mm. definitely one of the greatest hammerclaviers ever recorded. And I'm only focusing on Beethoven right now. So, yes, it was very important to get to know these names through these extraordinary uh, recordings. And so, over the years, I've always kept track of what's what's uh, been recorded. And I suppose it's important, too, with students as well. If you're teaching, you need to know sort of what's happening modern-wise with pianists today, the young pianists recording these things. Well, what's very sad is that this current generation is losing... Uh, this knowledge of that golden age because they go immediately to YouTube and they only look for who has the highest views and they completely bypass these extraordinary names like Friedman, Levine, the great pianist from the golden age, Hoffman, Rachmaninoff, Courtauld. If you don't know these names and their recorded legacy, you're missing out on a tremendous pianistic schooling. And so... I was thrilled to know those early Beethovenians uh, and then finally getting to you know, Brendel and not just one set to find out that he did it early on and then he did the one for Phillips and then did the second time for Phillips. So it's even interesting to follow one artist, his own journey. In his own journey. Exactly. Yes, with Beethoven, yeah, yeah. feeling a need to record it in his lifetime three times, or take Barenboim, the very early recording, and then the Deutsche Grammophon recording, and then the first video recordings, and now the last uh, recording. So four times for Barenboim to revisit the Testament. <laughs> the New Testament. Yes, the New, the New Testament. Testament yes. And he's even Barenboim got a piano called exactly. Barenboim. He had his own piano. Yes, that's Good right. Grief. Well, we're going to have to stop now, Gustavo. As fascinating this conversation is about Beethoven and pianos and focus and legato. and Yes, um, a very pianistic conversation. Well, because you're a pianist. But um, <laughs> thank you for coming in when you could be lying on the beach. But most importantly, I hope that very soon we can confirm a cycle of the 32 Beethoven piano sonatas right here in Cape Town in seven concerts which you will play. And, of course, the venue is very important as well as the piano at that venue. Yes. So lots of things have to fall into place. But what a treat that will be. Gustavo Romero, thank you for being a fascinating guest. Thank you, Ronnie. Thank you for having me. A great pleasure. People of Note on Fine Music Radio was proudly brought to you by Peter Turin Productions. FMR 101.9